you, one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday. Each week you get to learn something new and you'll listen this week. Narragoo Country, then and now. This is the high country of the Snowy Mountains. Your teacher is Professor Jackie Troy, the Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. Jackie, good afternoon. Hi, I should say kaju, which is how we say hello in Narragoo. This is a history that goes back, well, probably goes back further, but at least 20,000 years. At least, yes, that's right. The archaeological record suggests that we were living right up there, right up the top in lovely sheltered valleys. I was just there yesterday at Yarangabili and um, very snowy out in the open and lovely and calm and warm down in the bottom of the valleys. So it's always been our country and still is. Mm. It's a unique country in Australia or in anywhere in the world really, but it's quite different to the country in which other Indigenous people lived. There's no other alpine area in Australia. It's extraordinary. And uh, we are the driest continent on earth, which is, uh, so it's even more extraordinary that we actually have Alps. A lot of people don't think of Australia when they think of ski holidays, but we do actually have some pretty deadly, as we say in Aboriginal English, mm-hmm. ski fields. So yeah, it's a very unusual environment. And the, and the snow, of course, not, not only important to the, the skiers of today, but it was so important to the rivers of today and of yesteryear. That's right. These uh, big mountains, Kunamanamaji as we call the very top place, which literally means snowy mountains, um, is uh, the source for water for many of the great well, the, the great river system of southeastern Australia, the Murrumbidgee and the Murray and into the Murray-Darling Basin. So without the melt from the snow each year, uh, we wouldn't have those river systems and the ecology that they bring to all of the southeast of Australia. So this was a very important part of the culture there was to have the responsibility as, as, the, as the people of the place to make sure that the snow came down. That's right. And we, as Narugu people, still feel that responsibility very strongly. The Narugu Nation Indigenous Corporation that I belong to and over at Tumbarumba, there's the Toombarumba Corporation and there are many land councils also around the south that have an um, important role in the area, the Tumut Brungle Land Council, of course, too. So these people are our neighbours. Uh, we still want to protect the high country. We've got a knowledge of the place that nobody else has. We think of it as a place that nourishes us and in nourishing us, it also nourishes everybody else that comes into that area. Now, I played a little bit of this song. I'll play it again. What's going on here? Well, that is actually uh, a very old corroboree song that women from my country, women of the Monero, as the man John Lotsky, who heard them in 1834 singing and documented this song, um, they sang this song under the light of the full moon in late March in 1834 when he heard it. And we sang it again last year. I was able to reconstruct it with my colleague Linda Barwick from the School of Music at Sydney University. So I worked out what the song was about, which is a calling calling to the moon to bring the snow. And um, Linda helped with taking the music back to it, its original sound, which is just like a typical southeastern Australian corroboree song. So we sang it last year in April, a small group of Narragoo and our researchers from Sydney. And within two days, 
biggest dump of snow. <laughs> I think we've talked about this before, Richard. And then this year in April, at this, about the same time, we sang it again down at Dalgetty on the bend of the Snowy River. The next day it was freezing cold and within two weeks, once again, here we go. We've got an amazing ski season coming, amazing dump of snow. So all you snow bunnies out there, you can thank us, Narragumab, for that. Exactly. Now, you um, mentioned corroborees. And did, did these happen just within the Narragoo people or were there the neighbouring uh, Indigenous people? Was, was there much contact, much travel? Absolutely. All across Australia, we talk about song lines, you know, and along the song lines that connect all our people, all of our people, all Aboriginal and and Torres Strait Islander people as well, one way or another, uh, we would have places where we would get together and corroboree, which is our word for just sing and dance and just sit around and yarn frankly, share new knowledge and share new songs and also talk about important business, as we say, uh, conducting our laws. So um, in our country, the Bogong Festival was very important every year and that would be conducted, you know, there'd be feasts, Bogong feasts of these big fat moths um, that would pupate under the rocks of in the crevices of the rocks up in the high country, the granite rocks, and as they would, we would go in and harvest them and we'd eat them right through from September through till the end of March or so. And so there were these, these corroborees, these getting together events were very important for us. They're just like big important mm-hmm. national events are for other people in Australia now. How, how would the moths be prepared? Well, we used to... Um, cook them over hot coals and that would take all that fluffy sort of insecty stuff off and wings and everything and then we could you can just eat them like that they're like peanut butter they taste like peanut butter or you can put them on a a, a rock grinding stone and grind them up into like um a paste and then form them into cakes and toast them over a fire as well. But it was a source of protein, right? <clears throat> very, very good source of protein. And, um, you know, we would get really um, chunky over that period. <laughs> and then um, as you head into winter, and I, I was pondering on this yesterday as I was standing in the minus two or whatever it was at Yarrungabilly in the open country, and I thought you'd need all that fat on your body to get through the winter, even though we did have lovely sheltered places. Mm. And there were some good fat kangaroos around. I was looking at them as well with lovely fur coats that we would wear. We would wear their fur coats after we'd eaten them. <laughs> yeah, but that's the lovely thing about the, the, the cultural stories and cultural practices is, is they often contain pretty useful advice for living in that environment. Absolutely. I mean, the key thing is keep warm. Uh, make sure you're well hydrated. So we always camp near rivers, creeks, streams, of which there is an abundance. And there were magnificent waterfalls um, coming off all the rocks and all the hills, the mountains, really, as I went through yesterday. And uh, so you stay near water. um, You can follow rivers and creeks. You'll always be sheltered and you'll always find food. You're talking about being a feeling a, a custodian of the country. That's quite challenging at the moment, isn't it? Because there's mm. so much development going on. The Snowy Hydro, you know, two point zero is one example. That's right. Big industry in our country, but also the tourism industry is huge. And there's talk of a special activation precinct, you know, for the snowy zone and turning the ski resorts into much bigger places. This is going to have an impact on the water. That's a really big problem. Um, keeping our water pure and clean when you've got that many people in a national park. Very hard to get rid of waste. Um, Building will, you know, damage the environment. Every time you um, build something, it changes the ecosystem all around you. 
Um, and then the you know, there's four wheel driving, there's um, mountain biking, all these activities, and then the Snowy Hydro itself is a a huge industry. And look, I don't deny them the importance of bringing industry, um, money into the area and work for communities. These are struggling communities, a lot of them. Um, but it's also always a case of weighing up, do you want to destroy this pristine alpine wilderness that is a unique alpine biosphere rest, recognised by UNESCO? It should really be a UNESCO-listed World Heritage Place. It's the only place, only alpine environment of its kind. It's a you know Gondwana environment. Mm-hmm. It's been there since the last ice age, the Pleistocene. You, you mainly live in Sydney, work at the University of Sydney, <laughs> Broadway, the cars and trucks <laughs> rocking past. How, you, you mentioned you've just been there in the last few days. What yeah. does it feel like when you, when you first go home? There must be this sense of, of going back to your home. It's just uh, I, yesterday I literally did the round trip in one day. 1,100 kilometres, and um, one of the things was it was just important for me to get back on country. I wanted to feel feel the cold air, feel the high altitude, breathe the clean air, and feel the snow on my face. I'd heard that our song worked, you know, it was snowing, and I wished that I'd chucked in a pair of skis when I went down. I could have, you know, maybe got myself onto snow with skis mm. on snow. It was just, but it's just that feeling of the quietness, the calm, you know, you you get up there, it's magical. The trees are all covered in snow now. So these snow gums that normally have their branches sticking out and the leaves, they, they're long and they hang down. Their trunks are all like candy cane, you know, they're lolly coloured, they're bright green and orange and pink and creamy yellows twisting with their twisted trees. They're beautiful. And their branches were bent down with snow. So it actually looked like some kind of northern hemisphere sort of environment, you know, with these, you know, fir trees. Mm. Our trees do this sort of thing as well. And the creeks, you know, you see in amongst the snow, you see the sort of sparkling little creeks going through. It's just extraordinary. It's just the most beautiful place to be. Everybody should duck down there for a day. And, <laughs> yeah. You mentioned having wished you'd taken your skis. Do we know how traditionally Indigenous people there travelled across the snow when the snow was deep? Yeah, now that's that's something that intrigues me. And um, I've talked to Jonica Newby about this, another great ABC um, science reporter. And she uh, she and I talked about, you know, skis go back more than 10,000 years in Europe. And we have a history, a tradition in our family of bush skis. And this is something I also do research in northwest Pakistan with people from the Himalayas. And they have bush skis made from you knock down a sapling and sort of knock its branches off and strap them to your gumboots and off you go. And um, so we, I'm pretty sure that we did make um, bush skis. So this is not a tradition that uh, my, you know, colonial mm. Aboriginal ancestors came up with or... They didn't learn it from people who came into country, but also making snowshoes and knowing knowing where to walk. You know, I listened to my mother talking about how to get around in the high country, you know, and you don't walk in places where you're going to sink straight through and land in a creek, you know, because it's quite, it can be mm-hmm. quite deceptive, you know, where the where these trees bend over, especially on the edges of creeks, there's snow and sometimes you might not see that there's actually a creek running underneath it and you step on the branches and bing, 
you know, mm. the trees spring up and you end up in the creek. So um, there's a sort of knowledge too about how to walk through country without ending up in a river or um, down in falling into a crevasse, you know, but, or but, starting a snow slide, you know. But if you think about something like a, 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 a an indigenous canoe, what, what's a snowshoe other than a small version of that, really? It really is. And interestingly, in the Sydney area where I've worked on the language a lot, you know, the... Um, the word noi is also um, a word used for foot. So mandui or manui is your foot. The foot you go along is your, is your like your little canoes. So very well spotted, Richard. Let it snow. Let, Let it, it snow. snow. <laughs> Let it snow. Maybe inspired by this. Uh, <laughs> Professor Jacqueline Troy, thank you so much for the lesson. Thanks to Professor Jackie Troy, the Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. You can listen again online to Jackie's lesson, abc.net.au slash Sydney. There you'll also find details of how to subscribe to the free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast. Next week, a lesson from Tiger Webb, the ABC's English language expert on collective nouns and where they come from. That's Self-Improvement Wednesday next week. Music.